Hi, Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 897. Farah Mansour on the Deep October Surprise, Part 2. This is being recorded on March 24th of the year 2016. This program is a continuation of our ongoing retrospective analysis of the events that led not only to the taking of U.S. hostages from the Iranian embassy in November of 1979, but beyond that led to the actual installation of the Islamic fundamentalist forces grouped around and under Ayatollah Khomeini by the very same CIA that had installed the Shah of Iran in the first place in 1953. Beyond that, this extremely sophisticated covert operation also was directed at Jimmy Carter's administration and ultimately led to its subversion and to its discreditation through the hostage crisis. The term October Surprise normally refers to the taking of the hostages and a supposed deal between the Khomeini forces in Iran and the Reagan-Bush campaign to withhold the hostages until after Jimmy Carter's election uh, humiliation and election defeat were assured. As we have seen and will be seeing in this and subsequent broadcasts, uh, in fact, that analysis is so superficial as to be incorrect. In fact, what I call the deep October surprise goes back to the mid-1970s and again involves a covert operation in which the Bush faction of the CIA learned through former CIA director and U.S. ambassador to Iran, Richard Helms, of the Shah's cancer in 1975. Uh, Shah and Richard Helms and one of the key players, General Hossein, H-O-S-S-E-I-N, Fardust, F-A-R-D-O-U-S-T, a CIA mole inside of the Shah's uh, inner circle, had been networking all the way from uh, since their days at a Swiss boarding school in the 1930s. Withholding the information about the Shah's cancer from Jimmy Carter, the Bush faction of the CIA, not only George H.W. Bush, who was dismissed as CIA director by Jimmy Carter, the 800 or so key CIA covert operations officers such as Theodore Shackley and Thomas Kwan's people referred to by the Christic Institute's suit as the secret team, then proceeded to maneuver the Khomeini forces into power in Iran. What we are seeing is a Shiite manifestation of what the brilliant Peter Lavender referred to as weaponized Islam uh, in Iran. We have examined in our discussions of the Earth Island Boogie and the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, the use of Iranian or of Islamic fundamentalists as not only proxy warriors in the Earth Island, but also as the implementers of corporatist economics in the Muslim and third worlds. Many broadcasts, such as, for the record, 862, 863, 878, 879, 880, and 884, 885, and 86 go into that. As we speak on March 24th of 2016, the ramifications of that uh, continue to reverberate, uh, in this case with the bombings in Belgium following directly on the Paris attacks of 2015. In the written description for this program, which uh, will be very important for a deep and complete understanding of the material, not only is an entire article by Harry Martin included based on Farah Mansour's documents, but also a dramatis personae of the complicated cast of characters involved in implementing what I have termed the deep 
October surprise. Former Mansour, F-A-R-A, last name M-A-N-S-O-O-R, is a heroic member of the Iranian resistance who has risked his life and actually endured some very traumatic events, potentially lethal, in order to bring this information to light. We're going to be hearing information, uh, excerpts in this and other broadcasts of program material that was generated in January of 1993 as the Reagan and Bush team was leading office after 12 years. They were installed in part by what I call the Deep October Surprise and uh, the dual for the, the genus faced covert operation which actually brought the Khomeini forces to power in Iran and destroyed Jimmy Carter's administration was basically uh, it, its fruits had been born both in Iran and in the United States. Farah Mansour uh, downloaded his information uh, to Harry Martin of the Napa Sentinel and in his Free America publication of July 1st of 1995, Harry published an article, The Real Iranian Hostage Story from the Files of Farah Mansour, excerpting that. With thousands of documents to support his position, Mansour says that the hostage crisis, unquote, was a management, a political management tool created by the pro-Bush faction of the CIA and implemented through an a priori alliance with Khomeini's Islamic fundamentalists. He says the purpose was twofold, to keep Iran intact and communists free by putting Khomeini in full control, to destabilize the Carter administration and put George Bush in the White House. The private alliance was the logical result of the intricate Iranian political reality of the mid-1970s and a complex network of powerful U.S.-Iranian business relationships, Mansour states. I first met Khomeini in 1963 during the failed coup attempt against the Shah. Since that time, I have been intimately involved with Iranian politics. I knew in 1979 that the whole phony, quote, Islamic revolution, unquote, was mission implausible. Mansour was frank, quote, There was simply no way that those guys with beards and turbans could have pulled off such a brilliantly planned operation without very sophisticated help. I have collected enough data to yield a very clear picture. Mr. Bush's lieutenants removed the Shah, brought Khomeini back to Iran, and guided his rise to power, sticking it to President Carter, the American people, the 52 hostages in particular, and the Iranian people. Mansour's meticulous research clearly demonstrates how Khomeini's published vision of an Islamic government, the Viliyat, V-I-L-A-Y-A-T, Faqih, F-A-Q-I-H, dovetailed with the regional and global strategic objectives of a hardcore subset of the U.S. national security establishment loyal to George Bush. It shows that the Iranian hostage crisis was neither a crisis nor chaos. In 1953, the CIA orchestrated a coup in Iran which threw out the democratic government of Mohammad Mossadegh and installed the Shah. In order to understand the imperative of this alliance, we must realistically examine the socio-political alignment both in Iran and the U.S., and accurately assess their respective interests to find the common ground for this coalescence. The anti-monarchic forces in mid-1970s Iran consisted of various nationalist groups, including religious reformists, the Islamic fundamentalists, and the leftists and communists. The Islamic fundamentalists had no government experience, but they had major grassroots support. Islam in its Shiite format was deeply embedded in the lives of the vast majority of the Iranian people. The fundamentalists were absolutely anti-communist. The philosophical divide within the U.S. national security establishment, especially the CIA, became quite serious in the aftermath of Watergate. To make matters worse, the election of Jimmy Carter in 1976, his campaign promised to clean the cowboy elements out of the CIA, and his human rights policies alarmed the faction of the CIA loyal to George Bush. Bush was CIA director under Gerald Ford. Finally, the firing of CIA director George Bush by Carter and the subsequent Halloween massacre in which Carter fired over 800 CIA covert operatives in 1977 
angered the Cowboys beyond all measure. That was Carter's October surprise, 800 firings on Halloween 1977. Bush and his CIA coverts were well aware of the Shah's terminal cancer unknown to President Carter. The team had an elaborate, vested interest to protect. They were determined to keep Iran intact and communist-free, and to put George H.W. Bush in the White House. In this episode, we're going to hear about this. Mansoor produced a confidential document called The Country Team Minutes of April 26, 1978, more than a year before the hostage crisis. The meeting was held in Iran. The second paragraph of the routine minutes states, The ambassador commented on our distinguished visitors Ronald Reagan, George Bush, and Margaret Thatcher, and commented that Tehran seems to be the site for an opposition party's Congress. And the timeline of events uh, touched in this excerpt we're going to hear. In 1974, the Shah of Iran was diagnosed with cancer. In 1975, former CIA director and the U.S. ambassador to Iran, Richard Helms, learned of the Shah's cancer through the Shah's closest confidant, General Hossein Fardus. The Shah, Helms, and Fardus had been close personal friends since their school days together in Switzerland during the 1930s. On November 4, 1976, concurrent with Jimmy Carter's election as president, CIA Director George Bush issued a secret memo to the U.S. Ambassador in Iran, Richard Helms, asking, Have there been any changes in the personality pattern of the Shah? What are their implications for political behavior? Identification of top military officers that most likely will play key roles in any transference of power if the Shah were killed. Who will be the leading actors? How will the Shah's pet projects, including the, the economic development program, be affected by his departure? By July of 1977, anticipating trouble ahead, the Bush covert team issued preliminary script for the transition of power in Iran. According to John D. Stemple, a CIA analyst and deputy chief political officer of the U.S. Embassy in Iran, quote, a 10-page analysis of the opposition written by the embassy's political section in July of 1977 correctly identified Bakhtiar, Bazargan, Khomeini, and Beheshti as major actors in the drama that begins unfolding a year later. Contrary to this analysis in August of 1977, the official wing of the CIA fed President Carter a 60-page study on Iran which concluded, quote, the Shah will be an active participant in Iranian life well into the 1980s, and there will be no radical changes in Iranian political behavior in the near future. On October 31st, 1977, President Carter made good on his campaign promise to clean the cowboys out of the CIA. He fired over 800 covert operatives from the agency, many of whom were loyal to George Bush. Carter's presidency split the CIA it produced in the Cowboys, among whom many were trained in political warfare, a concerted will for revenge. By the end of the 1970s, many of these special covert operatives had allied themselves with George Bush's candidacy and later with Ronald Reagan's presidential campaign. You're listening to Dave Emery's For the Record. Long article-length descriptions of the For the Record programs are available at SpitfireList.com, also featuring information that wasn't in the original program due to the limitations of time. Next, we're going to hear an excerpt of my interviews with Farah Mansour from AFA number 38 in January of 1993. I thought that an interesting jumping-off point, Farah, would be to go back to the immediate post-World War I period and talk about the British role in setting up the first Shah of Iran. It's my understanding that the, the Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi was the second of the Shahs. Am I correct? That's correct. Uh, and the, in particular, the strategic role of the Shah and of Iran, uh, as envisioned by the British, in containing the fledgling uh, Bolshevik government of the fledgling uh, the, the Bolshevik government of the fledgling Soviet Union. That's correct. What uh, could you describe the process? Because most Americans have never have never have no idea about how the Shahs came to power and 
Uh, this is history unknown to most Americans. Again, well, immediate post-World War One period. Well, one of the uh, issues that I would like to uh, clarify here is that most of the studies that I have done is basically the hidden story about the hostage crisis and how the relationship between the uh, loyalist uh, at the intelligence community loyalist to Bush uh, and the fundamentalist uh, under the leadership of Ayatollah Khomeini came to exist. We have to realize that uh, the Shah was an absolute monarch of Iran, and uh, this I'm talking about Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi, which after the World War II he came to power, and he was the uh, the CIA on-site manager since 1953 CIA coup that was engineered and brought him to power. Right, and that was when uh, Prime Minister Mossadegh was thrown uh, out of power. By what the... we have to remember is that in 1950s, the former uh, Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, he created a policy, and I would quote from his uh, book, War and Peace, that he wrote in 1950. It says... Quote, the religions of the East are deeply rooted and have many precious values. Their spiritual belief cannot be reconciled with communist atheism and materialism. That creates a common bond between us, and our task is to find it and develop it. Of course, John Foster Dulles was Secretary of State for the Eisenhower administrations at the same time as his brother, Alan Dulles, was director of the CIA at the time when the Mossadegh, when Mossadegh was overthrown. That's, that is... That is very true. Now, one issue that is here when we talk about the alliance that he was developed excuse me, between the George Bush uh, loyalists at the CIA and the intelligence community has created quite a bit of questions, and particularly when it came to the whole issue of the Iranian hostage crisis, one basic question has never been answered, and that is that why were the hostages taken to begin with? And that is a central question to the whole uh, area of so-called hostage crisis that has not been touched on. We right. get to that a little bit later on, of course. Okay, now just for the benefit of the audience, it was John Foster Dulles who conceived a policy. By the way, what is the name of the book in which he makes that statement? War and Peace. War and Peace. That's he, he envisioned uh, the religions of the East, in this case obviously involving Islam, as a bulwark against the atheism of uh, communism or Bolshevism. Uh, if we have time for I don't want to direct the discussion past the point, because I, I have been told by people that, in fact, the very first show was installed by the British and envisioned by the British as a strategic bulwark against the Soviet Union, and it is the strategic use of Iran, whether the Shah's government or the Islamic forces, as a, as a bulwark against the Soviet Union that, under, that underlies all of the discussions that we're going to be in, uh, the discussion that we're going to be engaging in vis-a-vis -vis the hostage crisis. That's correct. Now, what we have to re remember is this, that the cornerstone of American foreign policy was to confront communist atheism with the religious principles. Now, that is uh, God versus non-believers. Mm -hmm. That was how the certain faction of the U.S. intelligence community, I call, I call them, network, became comrades in arms with the Khomeini's Islamic fundamentalists. The result of this alliance was that from January 1978, the Iranian populist revolution became infested with the fundamentalist movement, which uh, eventually consumed the host. By February 3rd, 1978, while Khomeini still was in Iraq uh, in exile, the network concluded that the code that the Shia Islamic movement dominated by Ayatollah Khomeini is far better organized, enlightened, and able to resist communism than its detractor would lead us to believe. It is rooted in the Iranian people more than any Western ideology, including communism. Now, the hostage crisis from the outset was to persist until all of its objectives had been fulfilled. The Republicans safely 
inaugurated and Ayatollah Khomeini in full control of Iran, although history makes no secret of who benefited from those struggles, most folks find it very difficult to picture these two odd lovebirds feathering in the same nest. And namely, U.S. intelligence, and the, the, in particular that faction of it associated with Bush and Reagan, and the Islamic fundamentalist That's forces correct. in Iran. Uh, perhaps before we go into the hostage crisis and the various strategic considerations involved, uh, let's go back to where you begin, Farah, in your letter, namely uh, 1974, when uh, Richard Helms, formerly Director of Central Intelligence, is U.S. Ambassador to Iran, and he learned that the Shah had cancer. That's correct. Now, Richard Helms, in 1973, as we all know, during the uh, uh, Nixon administration, his, uh, he was dismissed by Nixon, and he was sent to Iran as the American uh, ambassador. And he was there between 1973 till 1976. During this time, he developed a very close relationship with the Shah, but his relationship with the Shah of Iran goes back to from uh, mid-1930s when Shah of Iran and Richard Helms and one of the Shah's very close friends, and we should remember his name, his name is General Hossein Fadoust. How is that spelled, Farah? It's F-A-R-D-O-U-S-T, and Hossein is H O. S-S-E-I-N. He uh, was one of the Shah's very close friend from their childhood. And they went to school together in Switzerland. And in mid-1930s, uh, Richard Hams was in the same school called La Rossi in Switzerland. And there are pictures of that, by the way. So that the, the Shah and Richard Helms actually go were, were old school chums in Switzerland. That's correct. Okay. And that also... The same school was Hossein Fadus. Now, the reason for that is we should mention here because it was Hossein Fadus who was the head of a very top security intelligence uh, organization in Iran that even Savak and many other uh, uh, ministries, they used to send their reports to him and everything was filtered to him and passed to the Shah. Now, the Sabak was the secret police and intelligence service of the Shah, and yes. you're saying that they actually utilized an even more secret group of Iranian intelligence? That's correct. That was, that headed was by the Mr. Oversight, oversight Intelligence Community inside the palace right. under Hussein Fadus. All right. Hussein Fadus was called by the uh, U.S. ambassador to Iran after Richard Helms, whose name was William Sullivan, as Shah's eyes and ears. Now, we have to, the reason that I put emphasis on Hossein Fadus because Hossein Fadus was the man closest to the Shah that provided the information of the Shah's cancer to Richard Helms. By 1975, Richard Helms knew of the Shah's cancer. You're listening to Dave Emery's For the Record. You can subscribe to the comments posted on the SpitfireList.com website, most of them by a brilliant contributing editor who uses the moniker Terra Fractal, specializing, but by no means exclusively, in economic and financial matters. Okay, so uh, once again, just to recap for our listeners, uh, we have Helms, who should never be forgotten, was formerly director of the CIA. One never reaches a position of that importance in the CIA and, and is able, you never sever your connections with the agency. You know too much and you're too highly placed. He is the U.S.'s ambassador to the Shah. His association with the Shah and Hossein Fadust goes all the way back to their school days in Switzerland in the 1930s. Fadust, the head of a very important group within Iranian intelligence, which it actually superseded to a certain extent, if I understand you, the, the Savak, and, is, and it is that organization and Hossein Fadust that provides the information to Richard Helms that the Shah has cancer. That's correct. He was actually the chief of Imperial Inspectoral that an ultra-secret intelligence within the palace itself. And he had the authority to enforce cooperation from every ministry and government agency in Iran, including Sabak. Now, as being a gatekeeper, uh, he was able to virtually filter any information that he got to the Shah and even influence what Shah was permitted 
to know and to see. Now, there was a man in, at the American Embassy in Tehran who was the deputy director uh, of the political section at the U.S. Embassy who was also a CIA uh, analyst whose name is John D. Stample, and he was in Iran from 1975 to 1979. Okay, now, how is his name spelled? Uh, it's uh, John D. Stample. It's S-T-E-M-P-E-L. Mm-hmm. He has written a book about Iran called Inside the Iranian Revolution. In his book, he describes Fadus as follows. Quote, as someone close to the Shah, he's talking about Fadus, would have been among the first to learn about monarch's serious illness and its effect on his firmness and judgment. This is describing Hossein Fadus. Now, what we have talked about is that in 1975, obviously, Richard Helms learned the information about the Shah's cancer from Hossein Fadus. By 1975, it was very clear that how Fadus was playing a role as being a mole within the palace, as the closest man to the Shah. Again, John D. Stemple characterizes Fadus's importance to the network or the George Bush's uh, loyalists among the intelligence community. He says, quote, It is hard to overestimate the value of having a mole in an inner council of the Shah. Close quote. Now, once we learn this, then we know that there is Richard Helms, being a former CIA director, Station in Iran. During his time, of course, uh, a flow of arms sales to Iran was taking place, and he himself, I believe, was in May of 1976. He confirms his relationship to the Shah, and he says in the secret communique that he sent to Chief Inspector General Herbert Erf. Props. It's P-R-O-P-P-S. He says, quote, I have a close and friendly relationship with the Shah and the senior government of Iran officials. And the Shah is accessible as well as to certain other designated members of the mission. Close quote. Okay, now we should also interject at this point that Iran in general and the Shah in particular had long been, as we've touched on, cornerstones of American anti-communist, anti-Soviet policy in the Middle East, and the Nixon administration in particular, and Helms became ambassador to Iran in that administration, was very active, uh, Henry Kissinger and et al., very active in arming the Shah, who was envisioned as sort of the flank, part of flank element of NATO against Soviet military expansion. That's correct. Now, as we have learned based on the documentation and the research that I have done within the last uh, 13 years. I did 11 years of research up to about three years ago, and I did start my formal investigation to the episode of the hostage crisis uh, as a formal investigation almost about two years and eight months ago. And during this investigation, I came up to uh, learn some startling evidence and documentation of many compelling events and stories that up to now has not been uh, known to public. In 1976, we have to also remember that it was during the uh, Ford administration that George Bush became the director of the CIA. Exactly one day after the result of election was known to the public that Carter was going to be the next president of the United States, on November 4, 1976, there is a document from Director of Central Intelligence, George Bush, sent to the chief of CIA station in Iran and uh, making inquiry about 
the Shah's state of health. And I, you have a question? I just wanted to read very briefly this memo. We read it last week. Bear in mind, now this is, as Farah said, this is November 4th, 1976. Jimmy Carter has just defeated Gerald Ford in the presidential race. George Bush is director of the Central Intelligence Agency. And the following memo from George Bush reads, and this is in your note A on this circular letter, quote, Have there been any changes in the personality patterns of the Shah? What are their implications for political behavior? Identification of top military officers that most likely play key roles in any transference of power if the Shah were killed. And you also in note A have another memo from that same date which states, quote, Not only do we need future reflection on what is behind the Shah's words and action, but also additional information and field analysis is needed as to how decisions are formed and who is influential in implementing them. It is particularly important to know what subjects are withheld from the Shah and the degree to which reports to him are doctored by his subordinates. To what extent do such practices warp his perspectives, isolate him, and peril his regime? They, people at the agency, do not have adequate information and field analysis regarding his succession to throne. In other words, knowing at this point, as the CIA does, that the Shah has cancer, there are concerns about who will succeed the Shah, the Shah being a major uh, element, a keystone of American anti-Soviet policy in the Middle East. Continuing with the uh, memo from 11-476, what are the mechanics? Who will be the leading actors? How will the Shah's pet projects, including the economic development program, be affected by his departure? So at this point, George Bush, as director of the CIA, immediately after Jimmy Carter's election, is showing great interest on behalf of CIA in what the Shah, what, what his state of mind is, what his policies are, and who will succeed him. That's correct. Now, we have to remember uh, here that at this time, according to what record shows and what we know during the Carter administration, Carter administration had no knowledge of what was happening to the Shah because the official uh, version is that the Carter administration did not know of the Shah's cancer till very late in 1978. As a matter of fact, the degree to how his illness came to the point that became very severe and he had to be admitted to the United States up to November of uh, October 1979, uh, Carter did not know to what degree Shah was ill, and that was the basis that they admitted the Shah to the United States. So, in other words, what you're saying, Farah, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that uh, the although the CIA and George Bush, through former CIA Director Helms, knew about the Shah's cancer, uh, beginning with 74, well, Bush was not CIA Director then, but that that was known to the U.S. intelligence community as early as 74, but that Jimmy Carter, who conducted a house cleaning of many veteran CIA operatives, did not know about it until 78. That's correct. Okay. Now, what what we have to also know that the Carter administration, under uh, Stansville Turner, that who became the director of CIA from the beginning of 1977, and we also should remember this, that late November 1976, when it was known that uh, Carter is going to be the next president, George Bush made a visit to uh, Plain, Georgia, asking George Bush, I mean, asking Carter to let him to stay on for another six months. And Carter did not agree. Now, we have to also here to um, bring to the attention of your listeners that during the Carter administration, he had three slogans that he campaigned on during his uh, uh, presidential campaign. These three, number one was that he emphasized the issue of the human rights um, on international level and particularly in the Middle East. Second, he was he promised that he's going to do uh, some sort of a uh, house cleaning of the CIA and uh, especially since the events of the uh, Salvador Allende's uh, being toppled by the CIA under Richard Helms. And the third issue was that he wanted to contain the unlimited supplies of armament to the Middle East, and especially to Iran. If you remember the debate that he had with uh, uh, 
Gerald, Gerald Ford, one of the issues that he put it, uh, quite a bit of emphasis was that to really limit the uh, arms shipment to Iran. And so these three issues was very important. Now, as long as that the Republicans were in office, and as long as they would have had the CIA and the intelligence community to control the situation in Iran in the events of the Shah's demise, they didn't have any problem. But the minute that it was known that the Republicans and Gerald Ford is not going to be in the White House, that's when the telex was sent. Under George Bush's directorship at the CIA, there is a very interesting name that we have heard about him during the Iran Contra. Mm-hmm. was Theodore Shackley, who was the deputy director of the CIA, and he was designated to that post by Richard uh, by George Bush. And in the event, if Richard uh, Gerald Ford would have been the president, he was supposed to be the director of CIA. So Shackley, you're saying, would have replaced Bush's CIA That's director? That's correct. And Theodore Shackley became, uh, during the George Bush's, campaign became uh, George Bush's um, speechwriter. And we also know that uh, Theodore Shackley had a very good relationship with quite a few other individuals that became known in the East Coast effort later on. One of them was uh, Edwin Wilson, Frank Turple, and uh, there were quite a few other people that they had known each other from Southeast Asia, and one of the people that were very close to Theodore Shackley was William Sullivan, who was in Laos and then later on became the ambassador to Philippines. And William Sullivan then comes as a man within the intelligence community soon after uh, Carter becomes the president, and he becomes the American president, I mean, American ambassador to Iran after. Richard Helms. So William Sullivan, U.S. ambassador to Iran at the time of the hostage crisis, was a long-standing associate of many of the CIA professionals who were fired by Jimmy Carter and Stansfield Turner when Carter conducted a house cleaning of the CIA. Absolutely. I would also note too that in this, in the period when George Bush was director of the CIA, the operations of Frank Turple and Edwin Wilson in training and arming many of the world's most notorious terrorist groups, Gaddafi's terrorist cadre in Libya, uh, elements of the Red Brigades in Italy, elements of the Japanese Red Army faction, the Badr-Meinhof gang, the Turkish Grey Wolves, uh, some of the uh, some elements, not the IRA per se, but some of the elements of the IRA that uh, have been involved in some of the more, more, more notorious incidents there. All of these were among the beneficiaries, also Carlos the Jackal. All of these were among the beneficiaries of the expertise, the arming and training of Turple and Wilson. When that operation came to light, the public was told that Turple and Wilson were rogue CIA agents, that they were acting on their own. In fact, as a number of former participants in and students of the intelligence community have documented, it is absolutely inconceivable that their operation was not being conducted uh, as a deep cover U.S. intelligence operation. Again, to arm and train many of the terrorists that we here in the United States were told we need to arm ourselves against and that we need greater security procedures at home to protect against. But that was initiated by George Bush's CIA and people like Theodore Shackley and Thomas Kleins, later involved in the Iran-Contra affair, uh, were key elements in the Triple Wilson operation. That's correct, but one, one part that uh, I'm sure that uh, you forgot to mention it is the role that uh, Edwin Wilson played with Frank Turple, who is still a fugitive, mm-hmm. uh, training um, Omar Gaddafi's mm-hmm. in Libya. And that's one of the reasons that Edward Wilson is uh, serving a 53 year, uh, years uh, jail sentence right. in Europe, a penitentiary. Mm-hmm. And the reason that this is quite important to mention here, because we find later on, as we develop... Uh, this uh, uh, presentation that what role Frank Turple and Edwin Wilson played in uh, just about August of 1978 destroying one of the competitors to Khomeini who was a Shiite uh, 
Muslim leader in Lebanon, the leader of the Amal organization, uh, that who was taken in August 27, 1978 to Libya, and he was destroyed as one of the Khomeini's uh, competitor to clean up uh, the path for Khomeini's rise to power. Now, what was, what was that individual's name? His name was uh, uh, Ayatollah uh, Musa Saad, that he was an Iranian that originated was in Iraq, and then from Iraq he formed the organization Amal, and then he moved to uh, uh, Lebanon, and in August 27, 1978, he all of a sudden mysteriously disappeared. And when he uh, supposedly went to Libya, and in Libya, based on the information that I was, uh, got through interviewing some of the people within the intelligence community, uh, that he was taken over there and he was killed. Now this this is interesting. Now this this I, how was his name spelled? Uh, Musa Sad. That would be M O U S S A. That's correct. And then S. Uh, S A D R, S A D R Sat. So he was an opponent of the Shahs, but a rival of Khomeini's. That's as a possible I mean, successor. he was one of his competitors. Right. And he was much more moderate, and they didn't want to have somebody as moderate as he was, so they wanted to t take him away. We talk about that a little bit later on. But one thing that uh, they, it's very important to get into here is the philosophy behind this alliance. Why they came together. And what was the reason for the George Bush's uh, crowd and loyalists at the CIA and Ayatollah Khomeini's fundamentalist to form this alliance? Right. This private, uh, private alliance was a logical outcome of certain conditions. One was the Shah's cancer, of which the, uh, the, I call them their spook network, had the exclusive knowledge, mm -hmm. foreknowledge. And which they were keeping from Jimmy Carter. That's correct. Okay. The second was America, America's strategic interest, or at least they spoke vast, incredibly profitable arm trades, which required protection and continuity. Okay. The third item was the election of the Jimmy Carter, which took control of the situation officially out of their hands. The fourth was Carter's human rights policy, mm -hmm. which influenced the Shah to permit token concession to suppress voices of the dissent in Iran. Now, the Shah, by the way, was a brutal tyrant. Yes, and, uh, course, particularly the Savak. Right, the Savak were, were right. actively suppressing all dissent in Iran. That's correct. And then this alarmed their spooks within the network. Finally, Carter's Halloween massacre, in which he fired George Bush at the designated uh, Theodore Shackley and some 800... Uh, 20 of the um, covert operative within the CIA. That was the thing that really pissed them off. This combination of factors motivated these people to launch their own private plan for a transference of power. Now, you mentioned uh, the reading of a secret communique. They were talking about the transference of power. That's where it comes. Mm -hmm. The transference of power within Iran and for the demise of President Carter. For them, Iran's new power structure had to embody those many precious values that John Foster Dulles was talking about. In other words, basically a religious-based, spiritualist, anti-Bolshevism. That's correct. Anti-communism. Which it was deeply rooted in the Iranian society. Mm -hmm. And this it's, against, uh, this again, excuse me for interrupting, but this against the background, again, of Iran as a cornerstone of America's anti-communist policy in the Middle East. That's correct. Something and, also going back, as I understood, all the way back to World War One when the British installed the first shop. That's correct. Go ahead. Now, these many precious values that they were so deeply rooted in the Iranian society, then we have got the Islamic fundamentalism, which it was the spiritual belief that could have not been reconciled with communist atheism. And they found it, and the task was to develop it. Now, now we have to figure out what was the goal and what was their objective. Their goal was to promote the new world order by accomplishing two objectives. 
One was to keep Iran strategically intact and communist-free mm-hmm. by installing Khomeini's fundamentalists in power and on full control. Two was installed the favorite son, George Bush, in the White House. It didn't matter whether he was first uh, the vice president, but the important thing was to get him to the White House. And as you know, the, from the second week of the, uh, Reagan to be in the White House, George Bush was in control of many of the committees, including the uh, the anti-terrorist and many others. And, and in fact, uh, the vice president's task force on combating terrorism That's correct. Is, was the genesis point for the U.S. national security apparatus, which later came to light as having been used by Oliver North in the various aspects of the Iran-Contra scandal, and which has given rise to things going far beyond anything directly to do with terrorism, as I will talk about later on in this show, that not, not this evening, but uh, including the martial law contingency plans that were drawn up. That's correct. For this cause, 52 Americans were held captive for 444 days, and tens of thousands of Iranians were murdered by what President Reagan called Iranian moderates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, By the way, Farah, I, uh, if we have time this evening, something that you might want to discuss was that you yourself, as a member of the Iranian resistance, have lost many close friends to the, the brutal executions uh, by the security forces of the Khomeini government. Uh, you might want to describe some of that if you, if you feel like it, because many Americans are not aware of the punishment that has been meted out to uh, opponents of Khomeini. Well, one thing that I would like to mention here is this, <clears throat> that... In 1983, a man named Vladimir Kosichkin, who was the top man of the KGB Mm -hmm. in Iran, he defected in 19, I believe, 82 to the British. In 1983, he provided a list, supposedly, of certain uh, uh, Soviet spies or pro- KGB elements to the CIA. Mm-hmm. In the spirit of goodwill, CIA provided a special list to Ayatollah Khomeini's regime, whereby hundreds and hundreds of Iranians were executed. Now, Khomeini called this a message from Allah. Now, this is the great Satan that he was talking about during Carter administration. Mm-hmm. Now, many of Iranians within the opposition have been brutally murdered by Islamic fundamentalist regime, the, the professional terrorist and hatchman throughout the world, and the latest of them were the three of the Kurdish uh, resistant leaders from the uh, 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 Democratic Kurdish Democratic Party that they were in daylight in October of this year. They were machine gun in a restaurant in Berlin. October of 1992. That's correct. These were uh, Kurdish Iranian resistance people. Right, okay. and of course not all of them, but they have been killing all the opposition members. And also, since the uh, Clinton has won the election and now he's in the White House, the um, former uh, Khomeini's aides, like Ibrahim Yazdi, Dr. Yazdi, that who was during the uh, beginning of the Iranian Revolution, he was Khomeini's deputy prime minister, and later on he was the... Uh, 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 foreign minister of Iran. He was the one that was with Khomeini. He played a very important role during taking of the hostages, particularly the first one, and then subsequent to that was the November 4th. The first one is the February 14th, 1979, that hardly anybody talks about, mm-hmm. which is a fascinating story. And then why that even happened two weeks after Khomeini came to power, why would they attack the American embassy and taking American hostages, including uh, the American ambassador? 
and then why this man was being provided intelligence briefing uh, by the uh, CIA, particularly George Cave, and with the knowledge at the time, Deputy Secretary of State Warren Christopher, and I think that one of the cables that you read from the, the information that you had in your position, which was a crucial information about the 1979 Iranian hostage crisis, mm -hmm. reflects that. The, and the role of George Cave in Iran, and he was providing all this intelligence up to four days before the hostages were taken on November 4, 1979. You're listening to Dave Emery's For the Record. All of Dave Emery's 36 years of work is available for download on the SpitfireList.com website. The site includes many articles not included in the programs, as well as a small library of old anti-fascist books. All of the material on the website is available for free. Sister station WFMU is podcasting the For the Record programs. To subscribe to the podcast, use the link at the top of the description for this program or on the front page. Let's let's jump back uh, before we get to the first of the hostage crises. Let me just read a couple of paragraphs for a reread, I should say, since I read it uh, the, this whole circular letter last week. Uh, on page two, paragraph five, uh, you and your colleagues have, in response to Carter's lack of quote cooperativeness unquote, the pro-Bush covert team then fomented the Islamic Revolution and piggybacked it onto the existing popular revolt against the Shah. It should be remembered that the Islamic fundamentalist movement came to power in Iran as a result of a two-stage revolution, in this respect at least, somewhat similar to the uh, Russian Revolution, in which there was a democratic anti-Tsarist revolution, and then came the Bolshevik Revolution which, uh, of Lenin. Uh, there was initially an anti-Shah democratic revolution, which got rid of the Shah, which forced his abdication. Then Khomeini came to power after the Shah was already out. That's correct. Now, this is in paragraph 5. And then in paragraph 6, uh, one of the most remarkable pieces of information that you're, you and your colleagues have developed, uh, Farah, by the end of April 1978, private citizens George Bush, Ronald Reagan, and Margaret Thatcher were in Iran. A confidential minutes of U.S. Embassy country team meeting under direction of U.S. Ambassador William Sullivan, dated April 26, 1978, is noted, quote, the ambassador commented on our distinguished visitors, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, and Margaret Thatcher, and commented that Tehran seems to be the site for an opposition party's Congress. Allow me to uh, clarify that. Mm -hmm. To begin with, many of the documents that I have uh, cited, it is coming from the uh, information that was provided in the series of books that was published by the so-called the, the Islamic student following the line of Imam Khomeini after the capture of the American embassy, which they came to the position of many of the uh, so-called, quote-unquote, American fires at the American embassy. Mm -hmm. And this has been made out to, to uh, quite a few books. I believe at this time it's about 72 books that contains a tremendous amount of documents. This document, it actually has been printed out in one of the books, which is volume number 12, and uh, the, the, are, each of these volumes have got, for instance, number one, number two, this is number two, and they can find these on page 94, and it says right on the top of it, Confidential Country Team Minutes is dated uh, 26 April 1978 and it's actually in uh, full page and has got all the information because the U.S. ambassador and some of his colleagues that they were involved with Iranian crisis or Iranian uh, issues, social political issues, they had a country team meeting that in those meetings there were quite a few uh, people involved and also because we talked about John D. Stemple, in this uh, uh, communique, also it's stated that Ambassador asked Dr. John D. Stemple about the Majlis, which is the Iranian parliament member who spoke up against the Tehran bombings. Dr. Stemple said that he was the same 
Godfly, who presented their recent motion to uh, censure the government over, you know, another city, which it was Tabriz, is quite leng lengthy and is very, very compelling. And there are many other elements that, uh, or individuals that have been named that they were present in that meeting. So to be uh, sure that these documents uh, could be uh, accessible to the people, the serious researchers that they would like to look at, they can go and find this in many of the libraries at the uh, University of Berkeley. As a matter of fact, all these documents are at the National uh, Security Archives with Tom Blanton's. They can call him in Washington, D.C. and refer to these things, and they can get it out of the, uh, their data bank that they have. So this is not something that uh, it is somebody sitting down there and creating. This is a legitimate and genuine document. Right. Well, again, the, my comments were in no way to, to cast aspersions on what you're saying, but rather I think the, the importance of what you're saying couldn't be exaggerated, and uh, the work that you and your colleagues have done needs to be followed up by American, Iranian, and it would seem to me researchers in a great many countries because the implications of the scope of the activities that we're going into really could not be exaggerated. Two things that we have to say, this uh, areas that we are talking and presentation that is being made, we are going to be discussing this subject, actually I think that if the time permits, maybe in two parts. The, uh, the first part is some of the things that we are talking about, uh, and the last part, which is going to be the conclusion of the uh, study that I have done and the research that I have done, which it was made with the hope that uh, I'm going to publish a book, and this is the hidden story behind the Iranian hostage crisis, which are called Revolution Betrayed. And during that time, I think that would be the conclusion that what all of this means for us today. And by that time, when I would make the final presentation, I would have a very, very big surprise that I would make a presentation at that time. But going back to what you said about the Iranian uh, popular revolution, we know that by mid-1970s and through 1976, all the way to 1977, there was uh, the popular revolution against the Shah's regime in Iran. Now, in July 1977, according to John D. Stempel, the Bureau of Intelligence and Research in Washington and the CIA uh, station in Iran and the political section, they made a 10-page research and a study that, according to him, this research was sent on July of 1977 to the United States. Now, why this is important? Because we know that in August of 1977, the famous... CIA study was done for President Carter that concluded that there is no trouble in Iran and the Shah is going to rule Iran through 1980s. And they didn't see any significant changes in the political atmosphere of Iran. However, what is significant is that in this study that it was presented in July 1977, it says, quote, both the diplomatic mission and the Bureau of Intelligence and Research in Washington had sing, sing, uh, signaled that trouble was ahead. A 10-page analysis of opposition written by embassy political section in July 1977 correctly identified Bakhtiar, Bazakan, Khomeini, and Beheshti as major actors in a drama that began unfolding a year later. Close quote. Okay, now this is in uh, July of 77, and it is in August of that month that Jimmy Carter is assured that the Shah has smooth sailing. That's correct. At, at this point, the CIA is still in the possession, obviously is in possession of information developed during the Ford administration and during George Bush's tenure as CIA director, uh, going all the way back to the information provided to Richard Helms that, in fact, the Shah has cancer, that his demise is imminent, and this against the background of a search, a development program by the U.S. intelligence community to find a sufficiently anti-communist successor to, to the Shah. That's correct. But the question here is to be asked, 
is how did Stemple know that? When the President Carter did not receive this information later, and they are talking about four individuals of two, one Ayatollah Khomeini was in Iraq in exile, and Ayatollah Beheshti was unknown relatively in comparison to many other grand Ayatollahs in Iran. He was unknown, and he was nobody. And then we talk, they are talking about Mehdi Bazargan, who became the first provisional government of Iran under Khomeini, and prior to that, Shapur Vakhtia was the last premier of Iran under the Shah. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing that it is puzzling here, that how could anybody in July 1977, while Khomeini was living quietly in Iraq, that he would be allowed to leave on October 6, 1978, and be- become the Iran's absolute political religious leader in 1979. That again, Farah Mansour from AFA 38 from January of 1993. This concludes for the record program number 897, Farah Mansour on the Beep October Surprise Part 2. This is being recorded on March 24th of the year 2016.